Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This is the third and final part of a three-part discussion with my brother-in-law, Michael Horrigan, about favorite 80s movies, the state of streaming services today, religion, books, movie theaters, Macaulay Culkin, and much more. Michael is a Ph.D. student in American politics at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. We will now rejoin our previously scheduled show, Already in Progress. Some of that's the acting of Alan Ruck, Mm -hmm. right? Alan Ruck is so good in that movie. Mm -hmm. But some of that is coming from the writing and directing. And I do think that, you know, that kind of coming back to the point I made long ago, um, this idea that certain material or certain directors can sort of help to elevate you like is it not an unsurprising thing how many people give some of their best performances in john hughes movies Mm -hmm. why because john hughes apparently had an ability to connect with people and not only to write you great lines but then to help you understand what it was about them Mm -hmm. that was helping to motivate you and so that you could give the performance that felt lived in like you were that character yeah i mean you look at uh anthony michael hall the Vacation, Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club. He's amazing. He is. He's got great timing. Oh, his comic timing in those is yeah. is is perfect. And then and then because those three movies were hits, then his next movie where he's the first the first time he's the lead and out of bounds. Uh, I don't know if you listened to uh, the the Summer of 86 episodes, but um, he became a world-class asshole. He treated people like absolute dog shit during the making of that movie. And that's why he's never matched. It's because he, he, he became the caricature of the, you know, of the people that he was rebelling against as those characters. He literally became John Bender ratcheted up to 11, you know, in real life. And so that's, you know, and you, and you look at him now and what he became, he went from being the, the strange little nerd to becoming the asshole jock. And you look at him now, I mean, you look at him from, from even um, uh, Edward Scissorhands to go from, Breakfast Club to Edward Scissorhands in five years and see how much he has changed as a person, not just as an actor, but as a person, where everything you liked about him in those three Hughes movies, granted he only wrote Vacation, but, but still it's a Hughes movie. Oh, I don't care how much I mean, Harold Ramis might have. It's a Hughes movie. Harold is Harold, and, and he's a comic genius, mm-hmm. but the... It's not only that Hughes wrote the script, but also that he wrote the underlying Lampoon story right. that the script is based on, which is in turn based on his own experiences, which, by the way, are truthful. One should not, in fact, get in a car in the middle of the country and drive to Disneyland. The moral of the original Lampoon story is true. Just get in a damn plane and go where you're going. Right. <laughs> but, but, but with Anthony Michael Hall, it's like he never matched those three performances after 35 years is because... He bought his own bullshit, and he never recovered from it. And I've never seen the Dead Zone series. It's just, again, there, what he was and what he became has turned me off from him, where I'm not interested 
in, in anything that he does anymore because he was he the what made him special he got rid of and I think some of that is that you think there's an expectation that you're supposed to grow or change and move in a certain way or yeah. you want to avoid getting typecast yeah, that's what, what, what actually that, that he he kind of admits that is that that, that he um, when when Ferris was written Ferris was written for Anthony Michael Hall and he turned that down for Out of Bounds is because he wanted to be in a gritty drama. He wanted to expand himself. And that's fine and dandy. But that's not the actor who he was. That's, and, that's not where his skill set lied, right? Yeah. Like, the, the number one tool in his toolbox, like, out of the jump, is that comic timing, mm -hmm. right? Is that he is so good at knowing how and when to hit lines... Mm -hmm particularly Hughes's lines, right. that that's why, like, Hughes falls in love with him and keeps writing for him over and over again because he sees that and he wants to accentuate that yeah. as much as he can. I also understand why actors rebel against that sort of thing. They're mm -hmm. like, oh, well, I, I'm a five-tool player, right? It's it's the same thing you sometimes see of athletes or whatever. Yeah. I, I can do everything. It's like... You're not. But mm -hmm. you... Are you can do everything, maybe, but you're not as good at everything, right? Yeah. You're really good at this, and there's value in taking that skill set and utilizing it. And I think that it gets to this thing that the industry writ large sort of underrates comedy and the value that that adds as performance, right? Like, mm -hmm. as much as I'm sitting here and really praising Breakfast Club as this example of what Hughes could do when he downshifted into a more serious gear on a more regular basis, that movie still has laughs, mm -hmm. right? That still has Anthony Michael Hall cracking jokes like, chicks can't hold their smoke, right? <laughs> and he delivers that line so, so perfectly. perfectly. He times it, the accent's right, like he just, he gets that zone and how to make those lines sing. Mm -hmm. and, and, it's the, and, and it's the same, even younger... Macaulay Culkin, especially in Uncle Buck, the the scene between him and Uncle Buck, the the, the questioning in the in the in the kitchen. Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. On a rent. Rent. What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Do you have kids? No, I don't. How come? It's an even longer story. Are you my dad's brother? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? Thirty-eight. I'm your dad's brother, all right. You have much more hair in your nose than my dad. I'm nice of you to notice. I'm a kid. That's my job. Here's this nine-year-old kid who is asking a series of questions so deadpan, perfect, where he's not asking it as you think a nine-year-old would ask those questions, but he's just like, just they're just flying fast and furious. And, and then you have John Candy, who's a comic genius, keeping up with him. But you have these... This nine-year-old who's keeping up with a comedy genius. I was gonna say, it's and then and then you and I'm not a big fan of of Home Alone, but his timing on a lot of those lines and a lot of those scenes for a ten-year-old are freaking fantastic. And I and 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 it's kind of sad to see where his career went from there. And I would love to see even today. I would still love to see Macaulay Culkin kind of earn his 
not earn his way back, but bring himself back to that point where maybe he doesn't have to play a Kevin McAllister or the nephew anymore, but find the joy in acting that he had before his parents kind of destroyed his soul. And one performance I've actually seen of his that I would categorize in that way and that really takes advantage of his skills in terms of comic timing mm-hmm. and ability to deadpan was the movie uh, Saved. Yeah, Saved is a fantastic movie. Saved is a really Saved, fantastic movie. Saved that, shows you that he still had it. That he could that he comes back in that and it's that's really one of his first big attempts at coming back yeah. after all the child acting, and he still shows that he has still that tool set in his toolbox mm-hmm. that he can do deadpan and comic timing and delivery as this like nice supporting character who just has to crush like three or four scenes in the movie mm-hmm. and that's it. And he does that perfectly mm-hmm. and doesn't have to carry the film, right? right. Like it's it's Jenna Malone's film and she carries it perfectly because she's great. Yeah. Um but that's a movie that knows how to properly utilize its supporting actors around Jenna Malone to maximize what it is that they can do well, yeah. right? Like, that's one of the more enjoyable Mandy Moore performances because I think that she's kind of working in a gear that she gets, mm-hmm. right? Like, they're like, okay, we need you to do this and this. And she's like, okay. I can do that. I can do that. They go to Culkin, they're like, okay, we need you to do this and this. I can do that. I can do that. Yeah. And that's how you get a movie that maybe it's not going to be an all-time five-star classic, mm-hmm. but it's always going to be enjoyable because you are taking what it is about your cast and about your story mm-hmm. that works best, and you're focusing your film on that. Yeah, no, I, I remember when I got the press invite and when I was living in New York to see Saved, I kind of almost didn't go. And I went... And I was, I won't say mildly surprised, I was heavily surprised at the quality of the film. And, and, and especially, and I'm, I'm not a Mandy Moore fan, uh, I, it might be the only thing I've ever actually seen her in. But Mandy Moore was great, Macaulay Culkin was great, Jenna Malone, my god, you cannot say enough good things about Jenna Malone. But it's, just like, it's one of those movies that showed that even though he was now an adult, that he still had what he had as a child, and he he as as a child actor with the, the the comic timing and the and the presence, where even though he wasn't the cute ten year old that he was in Home Alone or, or Uncle Buck, that he still had that intangible thing that made him special. You had he still had those skills, mm-hmm. and you just had to figure out how to rearrange the way that you cast him mm-hmm. to take advantage of those skills. I mean, his brother Kiernan is a very good actor. Oh, I love very him. different actor. Oh yes, and you I know. love Kiernan's work. Um, I will always stand for Kiernan's work in Scott Pilgrim, mm-hmm. um, where I literally could not imagine anyone else as Wallace Wells. Um, and I'm very glad for him that he has a very successful show on the HBO now. Yeah. Um, that I'm sure pays very well. Um, but yeah, McCully has that talent, and for whatever reasons, personal demons, lack of a desire, you know, lack of quality material being offered, we can never know, right? Because we're not in the room with these people. Right. 
but it's just it's tough to see because you know we've and we've talked about a bunch of people like this like we talked about karen allen earlier mm-hmm. in this conversation I mean, these people who just sort of it's not like they can't do things right mm-hmm. like i can look at the at the way that uh, karen allen can act in raiders and then see the performance that she gives in a movie like Starman, mm-hmm. and those are two very different performances, but they're both great, and they both anchor those movies and make those movies work for what they are. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that I'm gonna that I love doing this show, and I'm gonna continue love doing it because there are so many movies from the '80s that still hold today. Uh, a movie like Starman from John Carpenter after. Halloween and the fog and um, escape is it, escape it, from it, New York and then and and Christine and then all of a sudden Starman, Starman? a PG sweet loving PG sci-fi say this and just like that was as far as a left turn as John Carpenter possibly could have taken and it is a fantastic movie. But it's just—it's not the movie you would expect. And then to see Jeff Bridges in that role, again, not something you would expect from Jeff Bridges. And then Karen Allen. Most of the people only knew her from Marion Ravenwood. And but that and and you know that's a movie that easily could probably be in my top twenty if I'd actually spent more time ranking movies on <laughs> Flickchart. I mean, I look at this list and again, the Chocolate War. When I was writing that script for it. I, I I think I wrote that it's probably one of my top five 80s movies. But now that I'm sitting here looking at my flick chart list, it's not even in my top 20. Probably because I haven't I haven't ranked it, and because it's been years since I've seen it. So, but there's so many damn good movies from that decade. There is a lot of crap, and, but and there the, are so many good movies. And that's kind of the beauty of the 80s, right? Because it's still this point where there's a lot of flood the zone and you've got all these people cranking out all this product mm-hmm. that you get this much wider spread, right? Like, you get movies, and I have to joke with this, that you don't see as much just, like, raw incompetence behind the camera <laughs> like you used to, right? And you would get but you would get that in 80s. But what you would also get is you get these things that would feel like left turns or just little movies that couldn't imagine. Like, we talk about how much we all love used cars now, mm-hmm. right? Used cars was not a hit. Used cars was not a hit. Used cars was in no way a hit, right? And that would have been... And yeah, that's a, and that's a studio one, right? We're mm-hmm. not even talking... You know, you talk about this on the show all the time. How many of these distributors popped up and went out of business, like, overnight in the 80s, right? I, like, I can actually tell you, <laughs> it's damn near 100. And, and that... And because of that, there's just so much more product being out there all the time. And the narrowing of film production and the fact that we don't have as many independent distributors anymore, right? Like, that we're kind of limited down to the people, of your, you know, your Blumhouses and your your STXs and your Lionsgates. A24. A24. Well, the thing is that we, we what we have now is we have a, we have a definite three-tiered hierarchy. You've got the studios, and 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 that includes what would normally be considered a mini major like Lionsgate. Lionsgate is a studio now. Oh yeah. You don't have mini majors anymore, you know, because um, like you know, Searchlight, formerly Fox Searchlight, you know, you um, Focus, which is a part of Universal, 
those are you know those are not mini majors anymore because a lot of the movies they make now are competing budget wise with major studio movies. I mean, so those you have are so then, studio Oscar basically wings at this point, mm-hmm. right? Like that is the purpose that they serve inside their studios. Yeah. Is, and, and then you have and then you have mid ranges like the STXs, like uh, Miramax before the Disney buyout. But you don't even have many of them anymore. And then you have a whole mess of these little indies like Strand, like Zeitgeist, like, oh God, um, Magnet. Mag, well, Magnet's a part of Magnolia, but still, again, and Magnolia is a part of, of Landmark, you know, and now Landmark's a part of Cohen, but, you know, but, and Cohen's a billionaire, but now Cohen Media Group is a little indie. You know that mainly focuses on on bringing um, foreign movies and and revivals. You know, same with oh god, I just had um, Milestone, Milestone Films and Video. They are probably the best independent film and video distributor because of the movies that they brought back. But they only do a couple of movies a year, oh. like like Killer of Sheep was pretty much forgotten until Milestone brought it back in the late 90s, and then um, L.A. plays itself, um, helped give it another, you know, helped give it a bigger audience. But there's Milestone films and video. Like I said, they only do two or three movies a year. But their movies, every single movie they did, they did, I, if I remember right, they did I Am Cuba back in the late, in the late 90s. Nobody had remembered that movie. That was a forgotten movie until they... That's what... That's, but you only have a three-tier level now. You have the majors. You have independents from, like, deep-pocketed people who are trying to build an apparatus like STX. And then you have these little micro-distributors. And the problem is, is you used to have some of those smaller distributors, <clears throat> and those smaller distributors could still get stuff into theaters because, to your point, when we started talking about Breakfast Club, and you talked about it was only playing at one place, right? Well, well that's just uh, in, in in a town well, that only yeah, had a, you it, know six movie theaters in general. But still, six movie theaters today, they'd all be playing that, right? But back then, they weren't, which meant you had to have product mm-hmm. to fill those other five theaters yeah, that were. Well, I can, well, I can tell you, like, when, when I moved to Santa Cruz in 82, the Scotts Valley Cinemas had four screens. And then in the mid-80s, they added two more screens. And then in the late-80s, they added two more screens. Basically, they kept expanding. So what used to be a fourplex 40 years ago now has 12, 10 or 12 screens. The 41st Avenue Playhouse, where I worked at, started out with three screens when it was built in the 70s. Uh, next door to it was a place called the Capitola Book Cafe, which was my favorite bookstore growing up. And the the bookstore itself was probably half the size of the theater footprint. But the bookstore went out of business uh, several years ago, and the new the, the you know the the they used to be on the forty first used to be owned by United Artists when I worked for them, and then they sold it to a small uh, company based in Campbell whose name I'm forgetting in a moment, they converted this bookstore into five additional screens. So it used to be a three-screener up until like 2012. Now it has eight screens. And so, and so what happens is, so now you have, you have the ability to play all these products, but most of the people who are showing these movies, the, 
the cinema, the Cinemarks, the Regals, the uh, the AMC's, the uh, <clears throat> that that because you have now you only have so many screens. You know, we don't have 30 screen theaters so much anymore. Even the 30 screen theaters are being cut down to 17 to 14, whatever. Um, so now, instead of having 17 different movies playing, you now have Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker playing every 15 minutes on 12 of those screens. And then you have five screens where you still have 60, 70 other movies trying to play on those screens. But... You know, we got to play Star Wars on 12 different screens. In my theater, it was a nine-screen theater. We were playing Star Wars on five screens. Oh, yeah. The no, first I mean, couple of weeks. And it's just like... that's And it pushes too much because, to your point, right, like, these movies now that are from these very small studios do not even sniff theaters. Mm -hmm. If we're seeing them, we're going to see them on streaming platforms at home. Mm -hmm. Well, I for mean, the most part. Unless you have, like, I'll say... You live in a major city where right. you are likely to have access to those because if they're going to play theatrically, it's going to be places like here. I live in a tiny little town in rural southeastern Washington. The only things that play there are the studio movies. Right. I am, if I'm going to see these, it's going to happen. And like we have an independently owned theater chain, right? It's just local, they own theaters in a couple different towns right. around the area. They're never going to play the independent stuff because they know they've got to make money on what they're doing. Right. And so it just, the 80s had this advantage, had, I don't want to say an advantage, but a difference in that because you weren't multi-stacking stuff on multi-screens, mm -hmm. you were filling all of those screens all over town in the six different theaters that probably when you added them up had 20, 25 screens. Actually, I can do that. Okay, so that fast point had two. Yeah. Uh, 41st Avenue Playhouse had three. The Rio, which was a single-screen theater with 900 seats, it's now a, a live theater, obviously not playing anything. Uh, you had the uh, Riverfront Twin, and then you had the Del Mar that had four. So between these, the five United Artists theaters in Santa Cruz County in the 80s, you had 12 screens. And you were probably showing 12 different movies on each of Every those screens. Every single screen had it. So, so I can tell you, um, when Crocodile Dundee opened in September of 86... We played it on one screen at the Del Mar, and we were the only people who had it. That movie played for 40 weeks at the Del Mar in 1986 and 1987. I would create the ad, the 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 ads for the, the Santa Cruz Sentinel. Uh, I, I had a drafting table at, at at the Del Mar, and and so every week I had to come up with something for you know it's like 37th incredible week must end soon. <laughs> 38th magnificent week held over by popular demand. But I, you know, and, but the thing is that no matter how busy we were with Crocodile Dundee, no matter how busy we were with Star Trek Four, no matter how busy we were with whatever, it only played on one screen. So it played at 12 and 2:30 and 5 and 7:30 and 10 o'clock or whatever. Yeah. And so and and each theater in and of itself like. The Rio, being the 900-seat theater, played the blockbusters. That's where we played Raiders and Indiana Jones. That's where we played Star Wars. Uh, that's where Platoon played for five freaking months. Um, and but and then the movies that you expect, uh, Witches of Eastwick, and then the movies that you expected to be big that weren't big, like The Princess Bride. 
when Princess Bride came out, I mean, everybody loves the freaking Princess Bride. When Princess Bride came out in 1987, and that's another movie that's not on my top 20, oh, that I love, I love so much. Oh, I mean, that's one that easily could have cracked my top five. Yeah. I mean, but the thing is that people were expecting Princess Bride to be big. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't. Because audiences, the, the audiences that first saw it didn't know how to react to it. And now we've had time over the last 20, 30 years to appreciate it because of home video. And I've talked about this in several episodes, where now we have the ability to go back and see things that maybe we didn't get the chance to see the first time, or that because it wasn't a hit, or because we were too young to see it. You were, what, four in 1987? Yeah, in okay. 1987, I'd have been four years old. So yeah, like my first active movie-going memories mm-hmm. are 80s-based, mm-hmm. but they're 88, 89. Like, I remember seeing Roger Rabbit in theaters, right. and that's 88. Yeah. And I remember seeing Oliver and Company in theaters, <laughs> and that's also 88. Yep. Um, so yeah, like, and I, re- I have recollections of... American Tale movies. 1986 and 91. Yeah. I think 91 was the one that I saw in theater. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the 86 one on home video. Right. Right? And that's because I missed those. But But if you had theaters like we have today back in 1986, Crocodile, if I had a a, a nine-screen theater in 1986, nobody, like the Beverly Center was like the first theater in America that had like more than eight screens when it opened with 14. But if you had a nine-screen theater in Santa Cruz in 1986, Crocodile Dundee may have opened on one screen because, I mean, it's a freaking Australian comedy with a guy nobody had ever heard of and an American actress nobody had ever heard of. But I guarantee you, it would have gone to two or three screens by the second week and maybe even added a fourth screen in the third week. Um, Because... That's that's the nature, but those you know. But instead, you know, we were playing twelve movies, and a lot of those movies, and then Scotts Valley, which is still several miles away, and was an independent that had, like I said, started off with four. There was um, the Art House Theater, the Nickelodeon, which had four, and then there was a crappy independent called the Movie One and Two, where that's where the either the absolute crap studio stuff played that that UA didn't want. Or the independence that UA wouldn't play, and you got to remember, United Artists even had their own distribution company in the '80s, uh, UFD, which would do, released like uh, which originally released Creepshow before Warner Brothers picked it up, um, released uh, uh, Dawn of the Dead. They actually had they actually made uh, Dawn of the Dead because of Creepshow. Let's say Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead. Sorry, the third one. Yeah, that's yeah. Day. Okay, Dawn is the second one. Dawn is the second one. But yeah, like, and and that's just, it's a change in how the business model works. Mm -hmm. And like, some of those movies would have come and gone quickly, right? Right. Like, that's part of the thing, and that we now have this huge kind of pool to draw from. Right. And so much of it, because it was still getting decent-sized production budgets behind it, it doesn't feel out of step with the other stuff that we remember from the era right. in the way that there's such a clear sort of canyon gap mm-hmm. in terms of what does a big studio movie look like today versus what does a small independent film look like right. 
that just you go back to eighties films and it's harder to see where that line is because studios made movies that looked like indies. They mm-hmm. budgeted movies that looked like indies because right. they were just looking to make more product because they didn't think they could just hand over one movie to a theater and say, you're going to play this on everything you have. They were like, okay, we have to hand you like six movies because you need enough to fill stuff around a whole town. Right. Yeah, and, 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 and it's just for, I just wouldn't, it just depresses me because there were so many great 80s movies that, let me rephrase, there were so many great movies from the 80s that I guarantee you, you've never heard of, because they were from smaller distributors that, for whatever reason, have you know they they might have been minor indie hits in at the time, but you've never heard. like I there's a movie that I preach called Man Facing Southeast that I guarantee you you've never heard of. Guarantee it. No, that one does not right. jump to my. It's brain. an Argentinian drama. About a man in an insane asylum in in Buenos Aires, who um, for all of his waking time always faces southeast in 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 the yard. Right <laughs> now, it's a fantastic movie, and a lot of it uh, of the movie has uh, K-Pax, You know the to the Jeff Bridges. Uh, um, Uh, Spacey. Spacey. Kevin Spacey movie. A lot of K-Pax is practically a ripoff of Man Facing Southeast. But because very few people have ever seen Man Facing Southeast, most people wouldn't know that. But if you've seen Man Facing Southeast, and and almost everyone I know who has seen it loves it, it's a fantastic movie. But it came out from a little film company called Film Dallas. And their logo, it said Film Dallas in a very nice script, and then it literally had bullhorns above the, the name Film Dallas. Uh, stylized bullhorns, but it was very much still bullhorns because the name of the company was Film Dallas. But Film Dallas, you know, was here and gone in a couple of years. And they released a couple other uh, minor independent hits. But from 1988 to about 2017, the movie was not available on VHS. The movie was not available on DVD. Uh, it finally came out on a Blu-ray, like in 2017, from some minor company. But it's one of those movies that I love, that I haven't seen since it originally released in, 80, in 88, but I don't feel compelled to to buy again, or to buy, period, even though I absolutely love it, or I remember loving it very much. And when I talk to people about it, those people are like, I've never heard of it. And that's the that's one of the things I'm going to try to do with this podcast over the next several years, hopefully, is introduce people to a lot of these movies that that you will never hear of because, again, the way that the market has been codified and and and, and turned into a commodity is that you know what when you're on Disney Plus, what are they showing you first? The Marvel movies, the animated movies. You know, even the, the 50s and 60s live-action movies that were their bread and butter for decades, you know, in the, the 70s, like Apple Dumpling Gang, The Computer War Tennis Shoes, uh, The Cat from Outer Space, even that stuff is not the first generation. What are they showing? They're showing you the more recent stuff that is most beloved by people because that's what people will go to. They'll go to the same things, and that's not particularly a problem. 
I do it with a lot of the same thing, but they don't show off the other things. Because now that Disney also owns Fox movies, there are so many Fox library movies that are not highlighted. That The only stuff that they highlight are the stuff that they know will have. In, um, oh, look, Miracle on 34th Street. Now Disney's Miracle on 34th Street. Okay. But you know, so like the stuff that they advertise on Disney Plus and other streaming services is the high-impact, well-known catalog titles. They don't... You, you, and, that's, I, and that's what you get when you are dealing with these sort of like top-level streaming services. Mm-hmm. That's why I really recommend to people things like... The Criterion Channel. The Criterion Channel. <laughs> Because the Criterion Channel has that sort of second tier of stuff, right? Like, they put up in October a whole 70s horror collection. Mm -hmm. I had seen one of those movies. And it's not like I haven't seen some 70s horror in my life. I just hadn't... They were able to pull a lot of stuff that I hadn't necessarily gotten Mm -hmm. to, right? And it was just some stuff that was really interesting. I think it was, uh, let's scare Susan to death. Jessica. Jessica to Let's death. Let's scare Jessica. Let's scare Jessica to death. And I'm watching that and I'm like, this is not what I would necessarily expect, but it's very good, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's been widely available or talked about a lot. And I think that there's there are services that are seeking to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think even some of the bigger ones, like an HBO Max, is doing a pretty decent job at that. Now, some of that is that they've signed deals with Criterion for material right. and TCM is handling curation. Well, TCM's owned by, 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 by Warner Brothers. By owned by owned by Brothers. So that, that, that's a natural synergy. That, that was a natural synergy. It's why they shut down Filmstruck in the first yeah. place. Um, Which still pisses me off. It pisses me off too. But I think that HBO Max is doing a good job of getting some of that stuff, especially if you do go to that TCM landing page Mm -hmm. right like i was going there and like during october they had a hammer horror Mm -hmm. like blood of dracula curse of frankenstein right but 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 most people know hammer horror people but the thing is people know of the idea of hammer horror but they haven't necessarily watched the movies right because the i'll tell you like i hadn't seen those movies Mm -hmm. i had heard of hammer horror i like horror movies but i hadn't seen the hammer movies and so i kind of went looking for them a few years ago well they're not really on any streaming services. Right. Like, they just kind of... If you can get your hands on discs, or you might be able to rent them from, right. like, a streaming service, but they're not just, like, on a subscription service. This was one of the first times I've really seen them on a subscription service, and I appreciate them being... Because Warner had done the distribution on those in the U.S., mm-hmm. they were able to dip those out and pull those out and be like, hey, here are the four that we have access to. Mm-hmm. There's four of the all-time classic ones, like actually watch some hammer horror right like and didn't just try to didn't just have it and bury it right like amazon prime has tons of stuff but it's buried and you've got to know what you're looking for right they put that front and center up at the top of that subsection Mm -hmm. so if you're going into that you're getting that pitch to you Mm -hmm. and to me that is great to see as a film fan because i'm like that's not necessarily pitching the immediate thing that people know to them but it is, it is pitching them something they've maybe heard of, mm. but never taken the time to watch. Yeah, it's like uh, Pluto TV. You know Pluto TV? Yeah, I know Pluto TV I as mean, well. Pluto TV, 
I, I love that they have a, a bond channel where they just show all the bonds up to uh, the, uh, the last uh, Brosnan. They don't have any of the Craigs. But it's just like, it's just 24 hour bond, and they start with Dr. No, and they run all the way to uh, Die Another Day, and then they just repeat them. I love that. So I can just jump into a, if I'm feeling like Bond, I don't have all the Bond movies on, on Blu-ray. I don't even have all the Bond movies, but I can jump into them. Um, but searching for a specific movie, like I saw about a year and a half ago, they had Popeye. And I had never seen Popeye in its completely, ever. I wanted to sit down and watch Popeye. But there <clears throat> is no way to just search. Now, they have hundreds and hundreds of movies in a, in, a live, in, a, in a streaming library. But when you go to Pluto... You can't search. You can't I, search. I, and I, it drives I, me up the damn wall. Oh, I know. Trust me, it drives me nuts, too. So, work around for your listeners and for yourself, Okay. Uh, if you're running into problems with that, is if there is a movie that you want to watch on Pluto, mm-hmm. um, that you want to specifically watch that movie, go to the Just Watch app or the Just Watch website, mm-hmm. punch the movie in there. There will be a link in the watch section for Pluto TV. Mm-hmm. Click that link. It will take you directly to the title. Okay. So if they still have it, then the title will load up there as an on-demand title. Basically, you ha- it sucks that you have to use a secondary search site to try and do it. And yes, sometimes I try to get very specific about genre or something to be able to pick something out specifically like Popeye, which I think they might actually have again right now. Um, but the, but, I'm, I'm, but on, I'm on their site right now. I'm on, I'm on the dev, and it's like there is, you know, under comedies, right? Hot Rod, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Medea's Witness Protection, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, Happy Go Lucky, Dinner for Schmucks, The Dictator. There is no rhyme or reason why these movies are, are in the order they're in. They're not alphabetical, they're not by year. There is no, and it's like, how the hell am I supposed to look for something? No, and that goes... And, and I the, hate, the, 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 the gooey just drives me up the freaking wall. No, you're not wrong. It drives me about Pluto as well. Nuts that you can't search for things. Tubi is nice and that you can. But Pluto tends to have a lot more stuff because they have these, like, they have, like, the Friends of Eddie Coyle is on there. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never seen that. I want to watch it. Like, I want to watch it. Like, they... Well, Pluto's owned by, by, by Paramount. So they have a lot of Paramount movies on there. Um... And so... It's annoying that I have to go to a secondary thing to make that work, but I do. It's similar to Prime in that way, right? Like I was looking, earlier. and that's why, and that's why they have Friends of Eddie Coyle because it's a Paramount picture. Yeah, I was gonna say like Prime <clears throat> is is in many ways this wonderful resource, hmm. right? That has all these movies, like thousands and thousands of thousands, films, billions and billions of movies. Like, but you and and I don't even mean like the all the stuff you can rent. I literally just mean the stuff on the subscription Prime service right. is way deeper than you think. The problem is, is you have to know what you're looking for. Exactly, and Pluto is the same way, and these algorithms can try to push stuff to you, but there's a limitation to what that is in comparison to say like the ability to get recommendations from friends or from podcasts mm-hmm. or abilities to make connections between oh I liked. 
this filmmaker, this writer of this picture, and they made this other one mm -hmm. um, with the same actor. Right. I, mean, I should check that out. Yeah, I've, I've got an app on my phone, the cookbook app. That <laughs> your, your, your sister uh, got it. And it's got, we've got like 400 recipes in there by now, right? But I can, I can tag certain recipes, and then when I want to cook, do I, I want to look for soups. I can click tag, soup, you know, and it'll show me every recipe I have that I've tagged soup. You can't tell me that there's not a way to, to for, for Amazon to curate things to the point where you say, I want to see a movie from the 70s. And then it just gives you a whole bunch, and then you can, I mean, there, there needs to be a way where you can more streamline the ability to search for something. Because if I'm, you and I are talking about man facing southeast, I don't know if Amazon has it, I don't know if Hulu has it, I don't know if Pluto has it, I don't know who has it, if anybody has it streaming. But if you're looking for 80s movies, and you're just like, okay, you know, and but you don't know about Man Facing Southeast. How are you going to find it if there is no way to, to easily search for a certain specific genre from a certain specific era or even a specific, you know, it's like you can see that they have things. It's like um, the Kirk Douglas movies. And then they'll, but, you know, the Kirk Douglas movies, there's no order to them. They're just, they're, they're just random. And that's where I have become a big fan of things like Just Watch mm -hmm. um, and Letterboxd. Um, the Letterboxd app allows you to do a lot of sorting by year mm -hmm. um, and by country and by rating. And so, and you can filter out things you have seen, things that aren't in, you filter out for things you've I'm seen. I'm still figuring out Letterboxd. I know you said you'd show me, but you're leaving in the morning. I was gonna say, I and I feel bad about that because yeah, it it really can be this helpful thing of that's how I've built my watch list up, right? Is I've gone to decades that I feel like I'm behind on seventies and eighties, right? Like I've seen films from the seventies and eighties, but right. there's so much more that I need to get to, and I can use that to say, okay, I want you to immediately filter out everything I've already seen, right? Because I don't need to see that right, right. now. And I want you to filter out everything I've already put in my watch list because I already know I want to see that. Right. Now, sh filter everything by the average rating of the users mm -hmm. and show me what's left. Right. And then I can use that to start building things that maybe I haven't heard of mm -hmm. or I haven't had recommended to me. But because there's this community that's building this up, it becomes this useful resource to fill in those gaps. And then I can even use it to search further to search for like, okay, I want this year and this genre and I want it to be available on this particular service. Right. And it can sort like that and show me that. Right, but I shouldn't have to be have to go to somewhere else <laughs> you to should, find something. You should and it drives me nuts that that I I love the fact that a company has taken the time to build this resource for the community. Right. Right? And that it has been this that it is this valuable resource for film lovers to kind of finally have this thing that's not the IMDBA that we can go to that can help. We can use it as an app to build watch lists and share lists back and forth and rank things and all of that. But I also understand the frustration of I shouldn't have to use a third-party software to understand what the hell it is that's on this site that I pay for. Mm -hmm. Like you should do a better job of curating your own stuff. And the problem is, is that 
with the exception of no, like a few notable side things, right? Like Criterion Channel or like HBO Max's TCM mm-hmm. section, there isn't a ton of curation that's really going on. Yeah. And that can be very frustrating as a film lover because it's harder to get those racks, right? Like I've had to develop this real kind of symbiotic thing with this third party app Mm. to help me. And it really has helped me expand my purview of things that I'm interested in watching. And so now when I pull together to try and pick something to watch randomly one night Mm -hmm. i have this huge list of things to start with right but i only have that because i've been working with this app for so long Mm -hmm. we used to have that with video stores and things of that nature you could go in you get those racks and that still exists in some places but you can also go into the video store and and you could also go to the new releases and the new releases were in some kind of order you could go to dramas and the dramas were in some kind of order. You can go to the comedies, and the comedies were in some kind of order. <laughs> and yeah, the, granted, the, most of them were alphabetical. And then there would be a section specifically for recommendations from, from the various staff members. But there was some semblance of a curation, even if it's just alphabetical. I was going to say, my favorite curation system is the, um, the curation system at Scarecrow Video, where... The bottom floor is curated by director in the first half mm-hmm. and country in the back half mm-hmm. for all the foreign cinema that doesn't go under a specific director. Right. That's all sorted by country and then alphabetical. The directors are all alphabetical. New releases are downstairs. And then upstairs is all by genre mm-hmm. and then alphabetical, including hyper micro genre splitting for like horror and stuff. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I just want to watch Mexican wrestlers fight werewolves, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, best, the best video stores have, have that. But it just, it's just... It, you, you should be able to... But now that streaming has replaced the video store, for the most part. I mean, here in L.A., you know, we, ha- we had Vidiots, which is coming back. <clears throat> which is also adding a movie theater, for, which is fantastic. I have no idea what they're going to show there, but... Or how, I would imagine it will look similar to what, um, so the Hollywood Theater in Portland mm-hmm. is run by the same crew that runs the video store there, and the name of the video store is escaping me right now, and I feel bad because I want to give them a plug because mm-hmm. they do good work. But they also own the Hollywood Theater, and they handle the booking over there. And most of what they show is either like the big independent movies you would expect, like they showed Parasite right. a lot. Right. God, I love Parasite. <laughs> uh, I hate to admit it, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, and, and and I'm well, I'm pissed off because I got four different press screening invitations, <laughs> and at three of those screenings, I would have gotten a uh, uh, bong door, or was, I, I forget the, the shirt, the bong hive, the bong. No, no, the, 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 the there was, there was a shirt after it won uh, the uh, won the palm door, and I forget if it's if it's bong door or palm bong. I think it's bong door. <laughs> But it had the the, the, the the actual, you know, con film festival, you know, leaf thing. And, you know, and they were giving those to the critics when they were coming to see the movie. And I'm like, and every time there was a screening that I was actually available to see, something happened that kept me from going. And then, and then my theater never played Parasite, even though 
we regularly played films from A24 and from Neon, you know. And so, and then by the time it, it, it was becoming a hit, again, you know, it's just like, no, it's... I didn't want to see, I didn't, I wasn't, wasn't in particularly in a film going mood because, you know, this, this pandemic thing was starting up <laughs> and I was, and I was more worried for, you know, being alive than see going out to seeing movies. That's... And now that it's available on, on Hulu or I think it's Hulu. It's Hulu. Yes. And just again, there are so many things going on in my life right now where, you know, I want to, I want to try to do a show a week and I'm only averaging one every two weeks because I've got so many other things now that I'm. I'm I'm at home all the time. I've got things to do at home all the time, <clears throat> you know, with with three cats and two dogs and, <laughs> and a wife and and a house. So no, absolutely. I, yeah, I was but say, yeah, but I just I, I desperately want to see Parasite. I feel like an idiot for being a film fanatic and not having seen the most recent Best Picture winner. And, and now, but on the other hand, I didn't see Green Book either. But there's it's a completely different reason. Yeah, that's, that's, I, yeah. I don't want to see Green Book. No, and that's I want to see Parasite. I love Bond. Like I was gonna say, I saw Parasite. I loved it, and I was gonna say Hollywood booked that, and they booked The Lighthouse and the A24, and they also do a lot of repertory stuff. Mm -hmm. So, like when the seventy millimeter print of Aliens was making the rounds, uh, they booked that for mm -hmm. a few nights. Uh, and I would imagine that the Vidiots Theater will be similar, right? When there are big touring repertory things, they're going to book those for a few nights. That would be nice. And then they'll also be able to book some of the independent releases that are currently going. Again, if the Hollywood booking plan is anything to go off of. And I think they're probably comparable in the sense that they're being run similarly. And, and next time you're down here... Um, hopefully things are better because there's a great video store next to the New Art Theater. I, I think it's called Cinephile. I haven't been there in years because, again, that's a freaking drive from Long Beach to to West LA. But again, that's they're 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 similar in terms of you know they've got sections that are sorted by alphabetically by director, you know, and and it's the the directors, the the God amongst men directors, and a few women too, you know. <laughs> And then, and, and, but that's again, it's just like streaming services need to figure out a better way of curating their movies because, again, you know, between 80s all over, which I, I desperately miss and, and hope that I can be half as good as they were, you know, and, and this and other, other podcasts about the 80s, you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of movies that, that maybe people of my generation and, and younger have never heard of. Like you said, you've never seen the Chocolate Warriors. Have you ever heard of the Chocolate Warriors? The name okay. that I am the name is familiar. The name is familiar to yeah. me, but it's not a movie that I had ever gotten to right because it wasn't something that came across on my radar mm -hmm. on VHS. And to your point, right, a lot of those movies because they're coming from these small distribution houses that maybe lasted a year or two. Right. Um, the rights of who owns them and who like. It's why stuff kind of comes and goes on streaming ways, right? Because everything's in these sort of packages. rights packages mm -hmm. that, that we suddenly just, like, crop up. I can tell you, like, like Troma. When I was at Troma in 2003-2005, um, their film library had more than a thousand films at that time. I don't know where it's at now. But, there were but a lot of the library was not Troma acquisitions for Troma. It was because they were buying, like, these small independent company 
uh, libraries. Like there's one um, one movie that that Troma did own. I don't know if they still have. They own it, but it's a movie with Ingmar Bergman. It's like ca- called the from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. or something like I, that. I am familiar both with the book and I may have seen the film, no. but I definitely know the book. It's yeah. a fairly but, famous. But the thing is that here you have a, a, a movie that's based on a, a fairly well known book with an Academy Award winning act. But because it's not a trauma movie, in the way that you think a trauma movie is, you know, yes. trauma never released it on video. But they've had the rights for twenty years. I think they eventually did sub, like, sell the distribution, like, video rights for it for like some thir- cut rate, third rate video company. But it's just like. I'll I'll bet you it's buried somewhere on Amazon Prime right now because Amazon because Amazon buys up these in the way that Netflix used to buys up these viewing rights packages for these older movies right. or public like the first time I saw um, Detour was on Prime and that was before the Criterion release uh-huh. and it was one of the old public access versions because no one technically had the rights to, they had the rights to yeah, detour it was, at the time. it was a public domain movie so I watched a real janky copy on Prime but you know what it was there it was there why because it was in a public domain and right. so there were like three versions of it so, yeah <laughs> but 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 there's just there I mean there's so many great 80s movies movies from the 80s that just you you don't hear because nobody talks about them and they're not widely available in any kind of discernible way and uh, and it's just kind of sad because again a, a movie like man facing southeast is a movie that if it had the exposure whoever owns it now i don't even know who owns it now but whoever has the exposure why don't you give it a chance it's the thing of like obviously i love wings of desire mm-hmm. we talked about it earlier right. and how much i think it's a beautiful film but how much is it that we just know Wings of Desire because it's always been readily available and been considered one of those ones that you have to see, right? right? Like, I have a copy of Repo Man. I love Repo Man. And, and I, I love Repo Man. It's not in my top 20. And, uh, but I've, I've seen Repo Man easily 30, 40 times by now. And Repo Man is one of those ones where I'm like, I'm glad that that's still available. But, like, so often the 80s become this sort of accepted canon. And mm-hmm. why is it this accepted canon? Right. Well, some of it's just that those are the movies that have been readily available. And when you talk about podcasts like 80s all over that help to, or, or the one that, you know, the one obviously we're doing right here that you're doing, it's this idea of exposing people to movies they haven't necessarily thought of. Like, I can think of Birdie. It's like the number one example I could think of from 80s all over in a movie that they just relentlessly championed. Yeah. And, and With good reason. It's a fucking fantastic movie. And again, another one that's not in my top 20. Because, but the thing is that trying to come up with a top 20 for an entire decade, oh, when there were so many damn good movies, and it's just like, but again, Birdie is one of those movies that it's, I, I think it's Alan Parker's best movie. And that is saying something, because Alan Parker was a fucking genius but the thing is that it's not when you think of alan parker that's not the first movie you think of you know mississippi burning was you know multiple oscar nominee including best picture you know um midnight express bugsy malone well that that that's a personal favorite but there's so many great alan parker movies you know commitments 
But you know, Birdie is the one that, that, that should be, if you think of Alan Parker, Birdie's the one that you should think of. But so many people don't even know what it is. No, it, it was a movie that I had literally never heard of before 80s All Over started talking mm -hmm. about it. I'm like, this is an Alan Parker movie starring Nick Cage and, and Matthew Modine. And Matt Modine. Uh -huh. And I'm like, these are two great actors on the come up in a movie that's directed by someone who was coming off of directing fame. Uh -huh. and it was a perfect hit. And, and Shoot the Moon. And Shoot the Moon. And... Pink Floyd, The Wall. Oh, uh, I mean, you listen, the, the, the movie he made, you want to talk about a director who never lost it until maybe the very end. Because after, I think, you know, from, from, from Bugsy Malone to uh, The Commitments, there is not a bad movie in that bunch. And it's a thing of, like, he's... But then he did Road to Wellville, and things kind of fell apart from there. <laughs> I was going to say, and it's someone who's working in different ways, and... But it is just this advantage of, like, this is a movie that you wouldn't expect to fall through. Like, mm -hmm. this is a guy who made a number of hit films. It's a movie starring a couple of actors who were in a number of hit films. Right. And yet, I had not heard one word of this. Now it's one that we talk about a little more. Used Cars has had a similar mm -hmm. revitalization. In By the, the way, if you love Birdie the movie, absolutely read the book. Okay. The, uh, I, I unfortunately read the book after I saw the movie. The book is better than the movie because what William Morton does is he you get into Bertie's head the way that you can never get into Bertie's head as in a movie, and right. and and then you will be amazed even more at how good a movie Bertie is with the inability to get into Bertie's head the way that Wharton's book. Does that and and like I said you'll appreciate the movie more after you read the book because the book is fantastic, and then you realize, holy shit, how did he get that movie out of this book? Because there is it, it it's just it's so richly detailed, getting into his mind. It's just amazing. And with that, we've been talking for almost three and a half hours. Yes. So we're gonna. I'm gonna say thank you. I love you, brother. Love you too, brother. We will hopefully talk again soon. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens with special guest Michael Horrigan. As we are an independent podcast without a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. So please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at filmjerk. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.